to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Where do missionaries come from? That question provides the theme for today's Great Commission Conversation. My guest today is missionary Jeff Williams. Brother Williams has served on the field of New Zealand for nearly 30 years, and from this island nation in the South Pacific, he's maintained his worldwide vision for missions and missionaries. In traveling the states on furlough, this question of where missionaries come from and how they're prepared for foreign mission service is among the subjects that he's preached on a good deal. And on the field of New Zealand, he's implemented some practices to try to promote the preparation of potential foreign workers. I think you'll find it interesting and perhaps applicable for the context in which you're serving in your local church. We'll be talking today both about the biblical pattern of missionary incubation and some of the practical tools that local churches can employ to serve as incubators for the next generation of missionaries. With that introduction, let's get into the conversation. Brother Williams, I, I've heard you preach a message twice now, actually, for the, the, the first time was some years ago when I was pastoring at Ridge Road, and you preached a message on where missionaries come from, and the message you preached just helped me tremendously to think aright and to think biblically about where God's labor force originates and who is responsible for contributing to the preparation for that labor force to to engage in the Great Commission. So I want to talk to you today about where missionaries come from, but first I'd like for you to tell our listeners a little bit about where you come from. So how long have you been in New Zealand? How did you end up there? And what's your work consisted of there over the years? Well, I'm originally from Bangor, Maine, and I have been in New Zealand 30 years come next January. And uh, coming to New Zealand um, was quite a change, obviously, from New England, going around the world when you're not out of the country very often. But our ministry here has been mainly involved in church planting. And for the last 30 years, we've been involved in trying to start five different works. We're on our fifth work at the moment in Queenstown, New Zealand. When, when did the Lord deal with your heart about about mission service? Um, when when did you receive the Lord, and when did you surrender to to serve the Lord as a foreign missionary? Well, I trusted Christ as my Savior when I was six years old, just short of my seventh birthday, at a backyard Bible club, and my folks had only recently been saved, and we had just started going to a I wouldn't say a Bible believing church, but at least a gospel preaching church. And so we lived in an increasingly Christian home as mom and dad got things sorted out. And I had the privilege of going to a Christian high school uh, in Maine. And throughout that whole time, my desire was to serve the Lord and whatever he wanted me to do. It just wasn't abundantly clear to me what that was. And so when I finished high school, I was at that crossroads of, Lord, I'm willing to do what you want me to do. You just need to show me. And I ended up going to public university, University of Maine and uh, starting out in engineering. And it was there at public university that the Lord really burdened my heart about preaching and about missions, uh, just getting out of a Christian environment and being immersed basically in the world on a daily basis, reemphasized just how lost, lost people are. And so Thanksgiving of that first term, I surrendered to preach, went off to Bible college. And right from day one, I knew God wanted me in missions. Uh, there's still plenty of gospel opportunities across the U.S. if someone's keen. 
But around the world, there are just so many places where the gospel is not readily available. And so it was that thinking the Lord really led me into missions with. Well, the need seems like it's actually increasing. And of course, as your story demonstrates, the Lord's still in the business of dealing with young men about foreign mission service and calling laborers to foreign fields. However, if the commonly referenced statistics are to be believed, it seems as though American churches are falling behind in sending out missionary personnel. And I I think that that's undoubtedly true in relation to the global population. There's just been a population boom in the last 75 years, but I don't know that there's been a boom in volunteers to go and serve cross-culturally in missions relative to that boom in population. But some calculations suggest that even maybe the volunteer labor force that's making themselves available is not even rising to the level of replacement for retiring missionary personnel. So I don't know how to process all of the statistics, but it's, it's very evident for anybody that's got any exposure to the global needs and been some different places around the world that just the need is overwhelming and the need is daunting and we're not rising to the level of that need in terms of the supply of missionary personnel. And this is one of the things that you engage in your message on where missionaries come from. So to what, in your opinion, what would you attribute this slippage in terms of new workers materializing um, and not rising to the level of the gospel need around the world? What, what do you think are some of the factors that are contributing to that? Well, obviously, we're in the last days, and you're going to see a great falling away as we get closer to the rapture. I don't think anyone really doubts that. And you see increasing worldliness in the church, increasing secularism everywhere you look. And so that's definitely a factor. Uh, World population is one factor, but I think churches themselves aren't growing at the same rate. And so if the churches in America aren't growing then their workers aren't going to rise to meet the same need either. In the churches that are that are growing, in the churches, in American churches that are healthy, and you've you've done plenty of uh, you've been in plenty of churches stateside that are strong churches that are healthy churches, and yet maybe even the response within those churches is not what perhaps it could be. So, what do you think can be done about this in terms of in in terms of uh, engaging the next generation in foreign missions, making them aware of the need, and having them ready to engage when when the time comes. Or to put it another way, what I want to get to is, where do missionaries come from? Well, I think there's a, a bit of a disconnect between the need and the practical means to meet the need. Uh, I think a lot of churches, especially growing Bible-believing churches, have a, a pretty steady stream of missionaries coming through and putting up the slides or the uh, video presentations as they are these days. And so people are aware of the need, but then the missionary leaves and there's nothing in place to really engage people on a daily basis. And at the end of the day, churches are supposed to be ovens, so to speak, spiritually speaking, where they're creating new workers, new servants of Christ. If a Bible-believing church is preaching the word of God uh, as they should, then it should be helping believers not only grow in their walk with the Lord, but in their service for the Lord. And missions should just be a natural outgrowth of that. And if you look in the scriptures, 
and you see where Jesus got his workers. He basically preached. People would begin to follow him. And the people who followed him, he engaged on a deeper level. And he began to challenge them, preach to them, and uh, teach them deeper truths, and then challenge them to take the next step and continue to follow him and serve in different ways. And gradually, he gathered his apostles. Uh, he had 70, and from there he got 12. But each time, he's asking them to take a deeper level of commitment and to show that by actually serving. And so when you look at where missionaries come from, ultimately a church should be producing potential workers and uh, not sitting around and just waiting for the Lord to, to pluck a few out and say, oh, well, we'll train these. That biblical approach to, the, to preparing labors that was demonstrated by the Lord, and then we, we see that also in practice in the book of Acts, for instance, that's not necessarily what we see in the traditional mindset in our day and time in terms of God calling labors. Perhaps there are fewer people that are volunteering for service than should, or maybe maybe there are some people who are who are who would be called of God or and are not callable, if I might use that terminology. But then even among those with whom the Lord deals with their heart, they make themselves available to mission service. Most of the time, those kind of folks are not really that they've got a long way to go before they're even prepared to get to a foreign mission field. And in many cases, they serve one term. And and again, I don't know exactly how to process all the statistics, but there are so many foreign missionaries that serve one term, return to the States and never serve again. And this is a related problem because maybe we're not going about this in quite the same way that, that the Lord went about it. And so you're, you're pointing to the fact that the local church should be an incubator for missionaries. And not only that that would provide the pool of potential laborers, but when the Lord deals with them, that they would actually be ready to respond to that call and wouldn't have to spend the next multiplied years trying to get ready to, to actually deploy in foreign missions. And it seems like that's kind of what the Lord is doing in Matthew 9 and 10. So how do you think our current methods, traditional methods, differ from what you see in Scripture in terms of the uh, preparation of labors for the work of missions? Well, I think part of it might be a misunderstanding of the word call. I think uh, when we talk about God calling a person, from a church's perspective, we're sitting around waiting for the Lord to do something. And then that's when we kick things into gear. Uh, when John Doe says he's called, well, then we want to send him to Bible Institute, and then we want to get him involved in things. And basically, the challenge that I've tried to give to churches is let's anticipate the Lord calling. He's not going to call everyone into full-time ministry, but if a church is healthy, there should be some people from this church who will be called into full-time service, and we don't know who they are. So let's prepare everybody and anticipate that uh, the Lord will call some to ministry, and when he does, they're already well down the road of preparation. And so from that standpoint, uh, I'm looking at it from the perspective of let's get our young people involved uh, from a very early on stage, and let's get them the tools that they need so that they're ready when these ha things happen. So you, you illustrate a more biblical model from 
the Lord's command in Matthew 9 to pray the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth labors into his harvest, and then his practice of what he has commanded others to do as it fleshes out in Matthew chapter 10. And then you also point to the practice of the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13 as um, as maybe a model for some of these principles that you're that you're getting at. So would you mind walking us through, you've already made reference to the Lord's pattern in Matthew 9, but could you walk us through that again and then how Acts chapter 13 relates to what you're proposing in terms of having a pool of people that are prepared to deploy in missions when the Lord so directs? Sure. No, in uh, Matthew 9, 38, when Jesus said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest, uh, he didn't just ask people to pray and then hope that something would happen. He had already been in the process of working with men, training men, uh, getting men ready for service. And in chapter 10, he immediately puts his prayer into effect. He asks the father and the father directs him to 12 and he plucks these men out and he sends them out and they're ready to go. Uh, They don't have further training that they really needed. Uh, He'd already been preparing the ground and and getting these men ready. And so when you read Matthew 10, it's just a matter of Jesus assembling these men, giving them some instructions, uh, some final details about how to handle their services. They go into the villages and cities of uh, Galilee and Judea, and then they go. And uh, that's not something that we can normally do today. When somebody comes down at the end of a missions conference and says, I believe God's called my family to a certain mission field, that's when we begin the preparation. And the Lord had already set the pattern of having that preparation in place. And in Acts 13, uh, as the church is praying and fasting about what God would have them to do, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to send forth Paul and Barnabas. And those were men who were already in the church. They were already teachers. They had already been tested, proven. They'd already been using their gifts. And it was just a matter of the church laying hands on these men and sending them out. And they were ready to go. Again, the preparation had been laid, uh, the groundwork had been laid, and the preparation had been made. And so when we come to a church situation, that's what we're really shooting for, is looking at our young people and saying, how can we prepare them so that when the Lord reaches down and and taps a young fellow or gal on the shoulder and says, I want you, that they're not intimidated by that. They're not starting their preparation then. So maybe what has become the typical scenario where, say, a young man responds to a message in a missions conference says, the Lord has dealt with my heart about about going to foreign missions. Now, all of a sudden, a lot of times churches are thinking, well, okay, we got to get this guy to Bible school so he can get Bible training, and we've got to give him real-life ministry experience so that he's not a novice when he goes to the foreign field, and we've got to give him language training, and there are other specialized skills that he needs to develop, and he's got to get out of debt, and he's got to go on deputation. And what you're saying is that if the local church would, would see itself as an incubator for missions— not not necessarily that every young man is going to make himself available or that every young lady is is going to end up married to a missionary but if we could approach if we could approach the thing to say you know what it's our duty to prepare all of our young people for service to the lord whatever that may consist of and wherever that may be that maybe we can maybe we could be a lot more efficient 
about actually sending uh, laborers forth and the time it takes for them to get to the foreign field and also, for that matter, the longevity of their ministry once they get to the foreign field. And it seems to me that you also see this kind of mentality adopted by the Apostle Paul, and you can see this in in his instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and that kind of helps us to that helps to inform our ideas about training gospel workers. So how do you think, how do you think Paul's mentality about this is expressed in his charge to Timothy in second Timothy two? Well, I think Timothy second Timothy two, two is an absolutely key verse in all of this. Uh, in that particular verse, the command to Timothy is the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And it's really a verse that lays the foundation of spiritual reproduction. If we're going to see souls saved and trained and perpetuate the Great Commission, then we've got to be thinking several generations out. And I think that is a crucial error that we've made. We focused so much on the first part of the Great Commission uh, as far as winning the lost that we're not really thinking beyond that. And in that particular verse, uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, I've got some things that God has given me that I want to give you, but I want you to pass those on to the people you win to Christ and train them in such a way that they reach that next generation. So there's four generations in that one verse or four levels. And Paul was thinking three levels or three generations out. And so when it comes to a local church and how they're approaching missions, yes, it's important to knock doors. It's important to bring people to church, important for people to walk the aisle. We want to see souls saved. There's no doubt about that. But we want to see them saved and become workers who are able to also be teachers, not just that they can win souls, but that they can actually train teachers who will go out and win that third generation. And it's setting up that perpetuating system uh, that the Lord had in mind with the Great Commission. Really, we're the result of it today. The fact that we're saved is testimony to the fact that someone has done that over the years and has prepared us to do what we're doing. And really, this mindset of the local church as being an incubator for missionaries is not just the responsibility of the pastor. It's not just the responsibility of the staff or the designated leadership, what the Bible envisions is the entire church body thinking in these terms and everybody seeing their responsibility and their role in the preparation of the next generation and the generation after that being qualified and equipped for engaging in and fulfilling the Great Commission so what are the, some of the scriptural principles at stake here, and how should an entire church body uh, learn to think about this and their role so that you don't – it's not just a professional endeavor. It's not just, the, it's not just the preachers and the pastors that are to be engaged in this mentality. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 is pretty clear that God has given every believer at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. 
and with all has the idea of everybody. And so the Lord has given each of us a spiritual gift, and that spiritual gift is not for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the rest of the body. And uh, the chapter goes into great detail on that. And I think with the charismatic movement and their emphasis on gifts, almost from a selfish perspective, you know, having some special language to bless yourself or this or that, that uh, sometimes the spiritual gifts have lost their potency in the sense that we tend to think of the pastor as a gift to the church, and we all sit there and enjoy the blessing that he is, not realizing that when we go to church, it's not just for us to receive a blessing, but it's for us to be a blessing. And each one of us has, a, has an obligation when we go to church to use our gift to be an encouragement to the rest of the body. And so when it comes to preparing the next generation for service, every single believer in that church has something that uh, that next generation needs. And it's, in, it's important that we see that and we are utilizing that. And I don't think many churches are. Those specially called, specially gifted uh, gifts to the church, if you will, the pastors, teachers, the evangelists that are mentioned in Ephesians 4, for instance, their mission is the perfecting of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry, so that the body can be edified. And that's the principle of multiplication and reproduction that, that you even referenced in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, the goal is to get the entire body involved so this thing can advance from generation to generation to generation. That concept is as simple and as biblical and basic as it is. I'm afraid that sometimes it's relation to missions and our vision of, of, of every member's role in the work of missions is sometimes missed. There's a lot of emphasis on praying, which is very important. There's a lot of emphasis on giving, which is very important. There's a lot of emphasis on going. But the entire church body is supposed to be engaged from week to week in facilitating the going. You ad- you addressing some of these principles has, has helped me, I think, to, to think more biblically about this. But it's not just something that you've that you've preached to others. It's not just something that you have emphasized in in your time of traveling to churches stateside. Uh, you're trying to put some of these things into practice in your own ministry in New Zealand. New Zealand is a is a very secular place. The number of Bible believing congregations is not particularly large. The membership of those Bible believing churches may not be that numerous. But you've really maintained a global vision for missions, and you're interested in reproducing labors yourself. And I recall you uh, making reference to some things the Lord taught you as a pastor and uh, while you're in Blenheim, if I'm not mistaken, and some young people that the Lord raised up at that time. So how has this mentality that you've described influenced your practice in New Zealand, and how has that developed over the years so that you're more, I might say, more intentional in trying to prepare the next generation for whatever the Lord may want them to do? Well, each of our works in New Zealand has been different in the sense of the Lord bringing different people along in just different situations. The work in Blenheim was unique in that God gave us a very strong core of young people. Uh, We won two or three young people to Christ. They began to bring their friends. We started a teen group. 
And pretty soon the church essentially was a large teen group with a few adults who came. And I could see the potential and I, I struggled to figure out how we could actually utilize that potential. And I began challenging them on some things like scripture memory and service and and they caught the vision and they were keen. And so as the opportunities arose, I could also see that they lacked a lot of basic training uh, in just various areas of life, things that previous generations might have picked up in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or because their parents or grandparents lived on a farm. Many of these young people didn't have those basic skills. Uh, some, some of them were from broken homes. Dad wasn't teaching them. And, and so we began to branch out into some things we thought would be practical and helpful. And as time went along, uh, several of them felt called into ministry. We started a Bible Institute, and uh, that advanced to one of them going to the mission field. And uh, when that happened, we began to see the things that we hadn't trained them in, the things that we wish we had. And uh, from there, we grew the thing even greater in the sense of trying to come up with some type of system where we could prepare all of our young people for service. God had called one. He appeared to be calling others. And so we began to try to think down the road, well, what, what do they need to know? What do they need to be able to do? if God calls them to service, if they're going to be effective. And that was really how this whole process began for us. Uh, we were in a practical situation where we had to put something into effect if it was going to work. And in time, that took on the shape of what you came to refer to as preparation passport. And so I was hoping you'd tell us a little bit more ab about that effort. As I recall, you reached out to some foreign missionaries that you were familiar with and basically asked this list of missionaries, what do you feel like you wish you had learned before you went to the foreign mission field? And from that, you began to develop a skill list, things that you observed that these young people needed, things that you fielded from other missionaries that they wished that they had had. And then you began to track their uh, their acquisition of these of these skills, or at least exposure to these skills, you began to look for opportunities to utilize your church family to expose the young people to these skills so that they would be prepared when the Lord uh, gave them an opportunity to exercise these things. So tell us a little bit more about the preparation passport that you developed and how you've utilized that over the years in your ministry. Well, the beginnings of the preparation passport um, probably began with the young lady that we had who went to Vanuatu. Vanuatu is an island nation there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a very third world, uh, probably even more backwards than Papua New Guinea in some ways. And so this young lady was living out in the bush. Uh, she was working with a missionary, but he sent her up to a particular village to do some translation work. And she discovered that there were some basic skills she needed that she didn't have. Uh, things like having to cook on an open fire. She didn't know how to make a fire, didn't know how to cook the food. Uh, as far as beating the wash out in the stream uh, to get her laundry clean, things like that she discovered real quickly she needed further instruction on. And in talking to me about this, it was like, well, you know, we could, we could teach the young people here some of these things. These would be fun. And that's what led to me contacting other missionaries and saying, well, what skills do you wish you had learned? And so from a group of missionaries, we 
received many lists of these things. We boiled them down, uh, collated them, and came out with, I think, about 105 life skills in several different areas, some of them spiritual, some of them just very practical, uh, some dealing with health, some dealing with communication, some with finances, some with machinery, uh, technical skills, computer skills. And that became the preparation passport, uh, just a little booklet that looks like a passport. And our young people each received their own copy. And the idea was that over the course of four to six years of teen group, that on a regular basis, we would deal with one of those skills. We would get someone from the church who had that particular talent and who was willing to spend the evening with their young people, uh, exposing them or teaching them whatever the uh, skill might be. Uh, then we would have a situation where the whole group would go through that and be able to tick it off in their little book that uh, they had looked at chainsaw safety that night and they could all safely use a chainsaw, something like that. And it involved the people in our church, got them to use their talents and gifts. And it gave our young people a lot of direction and purpose. Uh, teen group was not just games and a short devotion. There was actually a much bigger picture here. They were delving into new skills, new things that they'd never seen or learned before. And so for both sides of the church, the adults and the teens, it was mutually beneficial. And we've had a number of our young people go to a field or go into some type of service where those skills were vital and they were very handy. Is this something that you did? Were you able to see the church congregation get excited about this and, and an opportunity to utilize some of their skills in, in a in a church context that normally they wouldn't? Did, did, did you have a good response from the congregation? I definitely did. Uh, it definitely gave some of the people in the church who had little interaction with their young people uh, the opportunity to interact. Uh, people who had talents and gifts and abilities that we didn't even know about uh, came out of the woodwork. Uh, we have sort of adapted this now uh, to, I wouldn't say a national level, but our South Island has a teen camp every October. And at teen camp, we try to go through four to six of these different skills each year. Uh, we get different people from one of the churches to come in and teach. And so we're still utilizing it on a bit more of a broad basis. Uh, the work we're involved in right now doesn't have any young people in it, but there's still that opportunity beyond our church to uh, get involved in these things. Yeah. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about the preparation passport that you've put through, put together. I've worked at developing that somewhat for our own church, and, and we're, we're trying to work through how we can deploy this concept. We've got a tremendous group of, of young people, and we've got a tremendous group of adults that, are, that just got a wide array of skills and abilities um, to pass on to that younger generation. And I can see the I can see the potential for something like this for a local church. But one of the things I hadn't thought about before, I guess, thinking through this interview and some of the some of the discussion that I hope to have with you is that the team mentality that uh, uh, that I hope would develop if this concept was implemented for a local church, I hope that that team mentality, would continue, and I think it has the potential to continue beyond the preparation uh, aspect and beyond the sending aspect, because local churches—that's the incu that's where missionaries are incubated. 
But the role of the local church also doesn't stop when the missionary is sent. There's a maintenance element. There should be a, a, a continued level of assistance and participation and fellowship. And I just see that that could that that some of the things there are some there are some intangibles that can be cultivated by some, what you've described here that is beneficial for the entire body and reaches even beyond potential preparation for missionary service. And you're straightforward too, as you introduce young people to this concept, the idea is not just to prepare for missionary service, but the people that are working through this, uh, through the preparation passport, they're going to be church members. They're going to be fathers. They're going to be mothers. They're going to be Sunday school teachers. They're going to be able to contribute in their local church in a greater way. We've know? had lots of unintended spinoffs from this that have actually been quite interesting. Uh, clearly, it gets our adults interested in missions. I mean, they're looking at these things, and they can't do many of the things that are in the preparation passport. They were never exposed to those things as young people. Uh, but it stirs up their interest for missions. And we've had a number of our adults go on missions trips as a result of this overseas. Uh, our teen uh, group would usually have one big missions outreach every year. And for us, that usually involved going to a, another location in New Zealand, uh, usually quite a trip, where we would go and help a small struggling work, uh, run a week of holiday Bible clubs. Uh, one year, we took a trip to Australia and helped a church over there. Uh, one year, they took a trip to Vanuatu, which is about a three-hour flight from Auckland for us, and they went over and helped a missionary on an actual missions trip, which from a budget standpoint is a very challenging thing for folks here in New Zealand, but the Lord enabled us to do that. Uh, my wife has actually taken the preparation passport and adopted it for the ladies. Uh, there's a ladies' retreat uh, for the South Island churches every March, and she's come up with a list of skills sort of bent towards uh, the homemaker uh, angle and uh, challenged the ladies about that. In the last two or three years of ladies' retreats, they've introduced uh, some of those different skills at the retreat where they've worked on some different things, as well as challenging the ladies to go back to their churches and work with their pastor's wives. So there's just been different spinoffs of this that have uh, been really helpful to our churches. As you've tried to cultivate this incubation mentality in the works that you've been involved in there in New Zealand, you've actually had the joy of seeing some of the young people uh, that the Lord has brought your way deploy in foreign missions. And you mentioned the the young lady that went to Vanuatu. Um, I think there was another young lady that went to Peru. More recently, you've made reference to a young man that you had some influence in his life when he was uh, when he was younger, and now he's uh, going to Central Asia and passing through your new church plant there, and you're able to be a part of you're you're able to actually have him in to present his ministry. This young man that um, the Lord used you in his life to put missions into his heart. I I can only imagine that that is very rewarding. I wonder if you if you wanted to relate a little bit about um, about the the fruit that you've seen as you've tried to cultivate an interest in missions with young people there in New Zealand. Well, it's very humbling, brother. I mean, to be honest, uh, we're in a small country. Uh, foreign workers and even Kiwi workers 
are like hen's teeth around here. There's been very few proportionately young people here in New Zealand actually go into full-time service. And all of our churches have sort of struggled as a result. But from that work in Blenheim, God just did something. He just moved in a really special way. And uh, three of our young men are, are pastoring now. One of them is a pastor's wife. Uh, you mentioned uh, the gal who went to Vanuatu. Um, she was there about five or six years. And now she's serving in another church here in the country. And her husband's the song leader. Um, we've got a young gal in Peru right now. Uh, you mentioned uh, Daniel. He's in Central Asia. Got another young lady from our institute who's in nursing school at the moment. And she's done institute. She's taking nursing now to go overseas, uh, looking at possibly Africa. And the Lord's just been really good. And uh, I've kind of bumbled my way through it. I mean, I look at this thing and I being in the way the Lord led me, you know, one of those situations. And uh, God's just been good. And you just preach his word and challenge people to serve and challenge everyone to get involved. And God takes it from there and runs with it. You've not only challenged your your people there in New Zealand in the times that you have visited the States and traveled to churches. You've you, I, I know that on purpose you've sought to challenge churches and and pastors and parents and you've uh, challenged me in these things and i've thought uh, a good deal about some of the things that you've that i've heard you preach over the years what are some things that you feel like pastors and parents can do to encourage the next generation to take an interest in missions anything in particular that you really feel strongly about pastors and parents trying to uh, encourage an interest in that next generation in missions yeah, I think there's a couple things that can make a, a big difference. Uh, from my end, I see missionaries come to New Zealand, and some of them don't last. In fact, it's frightening how few of them last. Many of them come, and it's not what they expected. They had an idealized or romanticized view of missions. And when the practical realities of cultural issues and isolation come into play, they pack up and they go home. Uh, just this week, I, I came across a missionary who's come off the field, uh, not here in New Zealand, but in Europe. And it just breaks my heart. It's a fellow I met, uh, I got to know, and you just see these things and it just really tears you up. And so looking at the other end, I'd look at it and say, well, what, what could we do? And I think some simple things parents could do, especially if they're in a homeschool situation, but also if it's a public school, they could still do this is to make sure that their uh, children learn a foreign language. There's something about learning a foreign language that exposes you to a foreign culture, and it takes the mystique away from trying to learn a foreign language when you're an adult. I think a lot of our young people are intimidated by missions simply because they'll have to learn a foreign language. And uh, you can do that in school. And don't treat it as you know, a ritual they have to go through for a year or two, and then they've put in their time and they can move on, but actually make the sincere effort to actually learn the language. And I think that will definitely help. Uh, as far as Americans, I think we are far too rarely exposed to foreign cultures. All around us, we see foreign cultures. But as far as our American churches doing missions in America, not many of them actually go down that road. Uh, last night, thinking about this uh, interview, I just a little poking around on the internet, only five or 10 minutes, but uh, you're not that far from Nashville, I believe. 
No, no, very. And much. Um, I was just looking, and according to the, the latest statistics, uh, in two thousand, two percent of Nashville was foreign born. In twenty twenty, twelve percent of Nashville has been born overseas somewhere. Uh, you have a hundred and forty languages spoken in the uh, Nashville public schools. Uh, Nashville has the ninth largest Laotian population in the USA. Uh, it's people from Laos in uh, Southeast Asia, 6,200. And that's a country that is virtually impossible for Americans to get into. Uh, for an American family to prepare and to go to Laos would be incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive. Uh, and you have 6,000 of them down the road. You know, what if what if you young people took that on as your own mission field? Uh, you took a group down there and went to, uh, you know, some type of ethnic food restaurant that these folk have, got to meet a few of them, expressed an interest in learning the language. I'm sure they'd respond very favorably. And, you know, it wouldn't take much to suddenly have an outreach into that community. God has brought the uttermost part of the world to your backyard. Right. Um, I noticed that Nashville has the largest Kurdish population in the USA, 15,000 Kurds. They don't have their own country. They're in uh, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. But uh, again, you've got a situation where it'd be very difficult. And there, as far as I know, are no American missionaries to the Kurdish people in, in uh, Asia, but they're in your backyard. And you can't target every group, but you could target two or three and exposing our young people to that foreign culture, uh, taking them on missions trips to the seedy side of town or to a Muslim enclave in America. It's not expensive. It's in the backyard. And that breaks down a lot of those unrealistic views in the mission field. And so people know what they're getting into ahead of time. That is, that's a tremendous suggestion because it's, it's true that um, the mission field has come to us and, I'm afraid that a lot of times the only time that that registers with many of us is when we're bemoaning the fact that we're hearing other languages or brushing up against other cultures. But um, if we can think of this in terms of the Great Commission and the charges that the Lord has given us, the nations are here. I think that's a tremendous observation, and I appreciate you uh, bringing that to my attention there's another there's there's one other thing that you put in my heart a number of years ago. I did want to tell you that this is this has been on my mind since then. It's something that I'm trying to put into practice with my own family. But you you suggested when you came through Ridge Road, I think the first time, you even suggested back then that hey, you you know, we have this tradition in America sometimes of letting a letting a young person take a senior trip somewhere. In honor of their graduation, why not send your 18-year-old to a foreign mission field for their graduation trip? Uh, I thought that was a I thought that was a great idea, and it's something that that our family is trying to is trying to do. It's something that's important to me, and um, I, I think it's something that you've you've tried to do uh, to some extent with your own family, seeing yeah, the, with our own, your own children. children. Yes. And it made a massive difference. I mean, there's no question that it was a a turning point in their lives as far as living and being immersed in a foreign culture. And it definitely affected their viewpoint going forward in life as far as their service for the Lord. At the moment, all four of my children are in America. 
uh, but they're all in church and they're all serving the Lord in their local church. They all have ministries and that element of service, I think is definitely reemphasized when our kids are challenged to, to look at missions. If you were, if a parent were going to ask you, you know what, this is a, this is an idea that has not occurred to me before. And, um, I appreciate the suggestion. What's the best way to go about this? Do you think that there's an optimal time, a length of trip for a young person at that stage of life? And do you think that there's a better kind of mission field to go to, if that makes sense? Or do you try to adapt that to the personality of the of the young person that you're that you're sending forth? Could you put some some meat on those bones for the parents that are listening? Sure. And again, I would really kind of say these comments from my own experience. Sure. And just it's not that what we did is the right thing. It's just this is how we did it. Uh, each of our children spent several years with the knowledge that they were going to go on an overseas trip when they finished uh, high school. So it was something they were looking forward to, something they were planning, something they were praying about, and something they were working towards. Uh, They weren't asking other people to support them on their trip. They saved their own money and spent their own money on their own trip. So uh, they definitely appreciated it in a different way rather than just raising support or something like that. Uh, They were each responsible for uh, communicating with the missionary involved. Uh, We made some suggestions. We talked about the types of field that they wanted to go to, but we emphasized to them that it had to be a a third world country where English was not the predominant language. Uh, We felt that that cross-cultural experience was going to be really important because if someday they do end up on a mission field, and I still think some of my kids may at some stage, uh, they've at least had the experience of this is what it's going to be like, so it's not a surprise. And so a third world country, I think, is a high high priority and some place where English is not the main language. So that when they get there, they feel like a fish out of water. And they go through the culture shock and understand this is what missionaries have to go through. That's that's great advice. And, and I really appreciate you sharing your own experience. And as, as it has uh, challenged me as a father, I hope that it will maybe stir up some of the some of our the parents that listen to this podcast to think about Amen. the prospects of sending their their children somewhere to have some of those experiences and give them that exposure and whether they end up on the foreign mission field or not certainly an experience like that can be formative and positive and hopefully inform and encourage their burden for foreign missions and their that kind of that kind of mentality is needed in the local church, wherever they get plugged in. So brother, it, anytime I've heard you address these subjects, I'm always challenged. I'm challenged again today in the course of our conversation. I appreciate you thinking through these things and sharing them with others as you, as you've traveled to different churches stateside. And I certainly appreciate you sitting down with me for the conversation today to talk about where missionaries come from and missionary incubation Thank you, Brother Williams, for for your time and for sharing your wisdom on this subject. Well, thank you, Brother. God bless. Appreciate it. As a program, I think that the preparation passport that Jeff Williams developed for his uses in New Zealand could be a useful tool for many churches to promote pre-rapture readiness for local church and family usefulness, as well as foreign mission service. 
But whether such a program is employed, the mentality that Brother Williams has advocated for where foreign workers come from and how they're prepared for service is essential for a missions-minded church because it's biblical. The gospel need around the world is overwhelming. To think that the potential workers for this global harvest are in the Bible colleges and seminaries of America is to miss the biblical pattern. The potential workers for this global harvest are in your local church and in my local church. And some of them are in the youth department, the children's Sunday school, and even the nursery. Until we begin to think in this way, we're not quite thinking biblically about where missionaries come from. Thanks again for tuning in. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I welcome your feedback. And if I can ever provide you with additional information about this subject or any of the interview topics that we take up, I encourage you to write to me at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. That's greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond and encourage the next generation to do the same.